Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, for this special series celebrating the Andre Seymour Awards 2021. Each week we're meeting the authors shortlisted for this year's prestigious food book gong with an introduction by food assessor, the Nigerian-born author Yemisi Arabisala, whose memoir, Long Throat, Soup, Sex and Nigerian Taste Buds, won the Andre Simon's John Avery Award in 2016. Now, four out of seven on the shortlist have already appeared on Cooking the Books, and this week you'll get a chance to listen again to Dee Ritali tell me how Baking with Fortitude, the name of her book, as well as the story of her life, is about so much more than bread and cake. And as with the best food books, it uses food to make us think much more deeply about politics and culture. And so, before Yemisi told me what she thought about Dee's book, I asked her if it was this kind of metaphorical storytelling that she was looking for in the shortlist. I wasn't actually looking for anything because if I did, the, the end product would be narrow. First thing I did, of course, was jump at the memoirs and then I <laughs> put them down again. So maybe you're right. But food for you is a language, isn't it? It is something that you use in your own writing, your own award-winning writing, your own André Simon award-winning writing to really examine much more than food. And that's certainly what I'm most interested in. And certainly the shortlist really reflects that. It's often about culture. It's very often about politics. And it's very often about emotion. It's about an inner world, isn't it? I mean, pretty much each of them in their own way. Even Mark Diacono talking about herbs manages to make me smell things on the page that I didn't even know that I could smell. Um, What for you makes an award-winning book? You would have to be incredibly unique because there's so many books uh, that have been submitted to the Andre Seaman. And so if you imagine uh, last year there were 5,000 published cookbooks, in order to stand out, even if you're not being presented to an award, you would have to have a unique theme. You would have to be thinking outside the box. You would have to have a, a very strong voice. You would have to present your ideas in a way that was compelling all of the things that you would expect from a good book. But I think a little bit more, because there's something about talking about food and being able to connect, you know, with that very personal organ, which is the mouth. Do you think you found it in the shortlist? Oh, my goodness. Uh, This is a very, very difficult shortlist because every single one of those books are just brilliant. They're brilliant. I'm going to warn you ahead because you might have to edit the enthusiasts as a mouth to sort of balance it because some of the books I'm saying to myself, this sounds like I'm saying this is the winner. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> I can't edit out enthusiasm. I want enthusiasm. It's wonderful to listen to. No, they're great. It's a great list of books. I've interviewed, you know, four out of seven. I'm, I'm interviewing Mark next week and Yasmin as well. So, you know, I love these books as much as you do. So go for a full enthusiasm. Okay. So Baking with Fortitude was the first book that I felt I could attach the word genius to. I mean, this book is a darling. I was blown away by its innovation and integrity, its provenance. And that word is emphasized in the, in the book. And it's a word that I love because it promises you the delicious spice of heritage added into brilliant innovation. So the book's proposals for redefining baked goods are already stunning. 
You know, the, the photographs are beautiful. The book's cover has a delicious butterscotch complexion that, that makes you think of the sincerity and consolation of brown paper packages with fresh baking in it. Uh, and Ritali could have easily proposed baking, you know, just simply baking with offerings like orange yogurt and polenta cake or brioche buns with blackberry and cardamom syrup. And you would have been satisfied. It would have been satisfactory, you know. But there's also the honing of deep flavor with fermentation and the brief contemplation and challenge of what I call the established quantities of sugar in baked goods. She just, she threw the rule book out. There's absolutely no showboating here, just a kind of natural beauty and a confidence that comes from knowing you are an original. And having exercised this originality so often, it is near perfect. A genuinely fantastic book. Wonderful stuff there from Yemisi Arabsala. Now, back to my chat last year with craft baker at Fortitude Bakehouse, Dee Ritali, who was one of the first people to bring biodynamic organic foods to London in the mid-90s. She founded Patisserie Organic in 1998 and her Soho-born coffee and sandwich shop, Fernandez & Wells, blazed a trail way before the boho bakeries made real bread cool. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to believe that that wasn't a bandwagon. I'd like to believe that it's not something that people go, oh, that's really cool, let's do it. It's actually a serious industry that needs to continue to grow. Her book, Baking with Fortitude, describes a woman with grit in her belly. I asked her to take me back to her Irish small holding, where it all began. We had a very nice childhood and it was we were a bit feral and we went off and did our thing all day long and played in the woods and the river and um, we kind of had to get on with it. I'm one of eight children, so, it, you know, there was no molly coddling, as we would say in Ireland. I just learned how to do things very early on because we had to. And it was very, I mean, it was, I'm, it was easier than my parents would have had it, but it was, uh, you know, quite a simple life there was nothing um that we did without i think that was the main thing um or that we knew that we were doing without but it was it was a very simple life and um my grandparents had pigs and we grew things and yeah we just we just had a very nice time with a very close family yeah and of course food from the land was absolutely part of that experience you didn't have to you didn't rely on supermarkets and stuff you grew what you you needed presumably and and you made cakes and you baked bread in the proper way, um, it's, which is what you do now. And, and, and that is your brand. And it seems like there's this massive kind of difference between the way things were done in the old days and this kind of innovation that you've brought to break bakery, which is, which is the same principle, isn't it? It is. I mean, for me, I'm a craft baker. And, you know, there aren't many craft bakers left really in the UK. Um, I use very, I have, there's very little intervention in what I do. So what I'm doing now currently is when I make sourdough cake, it's all about flavour. So I try and bring back a lot of the tradition into flavour, which other people go another way and they can make it, you know, it's people work in different ways. But my way of working is to try and get people to have a taste of something which is very traditional and it almost tastes like home. Uh, they can't really put their finger on it, but that's my aim and it's how I've always worked and I've always worked seasonally because that's how it's always been. You know, I don't believe in, um, you know, getting strawberries in December, which, I mean, they're, you know, each to their own. That's just the way I've done things and I do things now. 
And that is a direct link to the way that you were growing up in Ireland at that time. It's very natural, very traditional, seasonal, local, do it the way that it's always been done. But it is important to talk about the impact of of that attitude when you came to London to the Bumblebee Natural Foods in in 1995. You, you know, it was way ahead of its time there. You were chief baker there. I mean, what did it feel like in 1995 to bring what you'd been doing completely naturally to cool London at that time and bringing a sense of innovation? The reason I kind of went to Bumblebee, I think, was because they were... Um, they were trying to do something which was also very natural and very wholesome, but it was kind of almost too wholesome in that people were losing interest in um, food that was very heavy or very brown, as we used to say there, and didn't have a huge amount of colour and sometimes not a huge amount of interest. So when I started with them, my aim there was to start making a kind of patisserie, which was artisan in style, made completely by hand. And that would bring something um, with colour and interest to people, So, but using organic and biodynamic ingredients. And it was very easy there because everything was to hand. They sourced stuff from all over the world in terms of dried fruit and spices and flower waters, but the actual daily... Um, we, were, we were actually one of the first people to look at food waste as well, which was very, very early on. And people were not necessarily buying organic. They were a little bit suspicious of it. Uh, there wasn't, you know, people didn't know very much about that industry. So it was, it was, it was very early days. I mean, you know, to try and sell organic patisserie and organic cake, specialist cake, gluten-free, vegan, we were definitely, or I was definitely one of the first people in the UK to really do that from very early on, which wasn't easy. But I think it's kind of how it's always been for me. I've never kind of gone on. I've never jumped on any bandwagon. I've always, you know, sort of beat my own drum in terms of doing what I do and what I'm interested in. And Yeah. And of course, you know, let's try and remember the kind of the food landscape in 1995. It was before all the TV chefs, before Nigella and Jamie and all those kind of people exploded our interest in actually cooking and and in, in sort of showing off in front of our friends and, you know, kind of all that. The, 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 the cooking at home that the supermarkets enabled um, hadn't really started. And we were interested in, in food we were picking up as we were traveling all over the world. You know, there's a lot of business travel and people were beginning to take gap years and there was a lot of interest in other things that weren't our own and you know what you're talking about is so our own that it was absolutely put on the back burner and you're absolutely right of of looking at the food in the context of saving the planet gosh you know we hadn't even thought about doing things we were completely the opposite it was it was such a different food landscape i mean when you look back where do you think we where do you think we went wrong? Well, I think people, what happened was, for me anyway, having grown up in Ireland in the 70s, we didn't have supermarkets. I mean, I went to my first supermarket in 1985 um, because I think people didn't didn't know what to do with ingredients, which was the first one which I saw. So there was, people didn't understand provenance. Then when they got the ingredients, um there wasn't a huge amount of education and information about how to cook. Not in a way that, you you know, for cookbooks or, um, 
I don't know, I mean, you know, people learning how to do things was a problem because people didn't really know how to cook with fresh ingredients because the supermarkets were just packed full of... Uh, they, the whole ready meal scene had kind of exploded as well. Um, but then when people did get ingredients and learn... What, what I found was when people were buying ingredients, the fridge would be full of food and most of it would be put in the bin because they didn't know what to do with it. I think there's just been a huge lack of education. Um, when you, when you, you know, in schools, there was just no, there was children weren't educated about food. I mean, my, both my children went to a London primary school and it was quite progressive. I mean, this was in like 1998 when Samaya started that the head teacher there understood organic and biodynamic food and she was trying to bring something else to the table but parents either didn't want it say 50% of them didn't want it and also at home they were eating everything was so easily accessible yeah. I think that's the huge a huge problem is that there was a boom there was a sudden boom in um, takeaway food uh, we'd gone from fine dining, which a lot of people couldn't afford, to then takeaway foods, to supermarkets being absolutely jam-packed with whatever you wanted. And a huge thing, and I still say this to people now when I talk about food or I do uh, different before pre-COVID, I used to do a lot of teaching, is meal planning. People didn't plan meals. I think people still don't plan meals, which means there's a huge amount of waste because you just go and grab. You just think, I need this and I need this and I need this. There was no um, pickling, fermentation. I mean, we were big advocates in Ireland of freezing food. Every family had a freezer because that's, how, that's what got us through the winter. And they, people had per perceptions of all of this which were very negative. And I think that's where, even now, I think it's still a huge issue that there isn't enough information through supermarkets about feeding yourself and actually looking after your ingredients i, I yeah. still I, I you know if i go to a supermarket i think there's nothing about food waste there's nothing they don't speak about what they do with their food waste and yeah i think it's purely a lack of informing people yeah i think you're right i mean i was talking to i, I do a podcast called right to food for the food foundation i was talking to some of their teenage uh, food ambassadors you know all of whom lived in food poverty and i was talking to them about you know why do what is the problem and one of them who comes from a pakistani indian background and she said we don't know what british food looks like you know it we 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 learn all these kind of cooking skills at, at at school, you know, very very basic. But we don't actually know what what British food looks like, and there's this disconnect. But we are like magpies. We're so interested in everything else that we've lost our way. And I'm very interested in you know what counts as your innovation uh, is is actually something that your grandmother did. So there's this disconnect of about, what, 30, 40 years. And I wonder if that will close. So when you're talking about fermenting batter for cakes and souring milk like your grandmother did, and we'll hear more about those in a second in, in your food moment, whether that will become part of British culture and whether fermenting and pickling and all the things that people do to avoid waste will become again part of naturally what we do just to to save money yeah i think it will i mean i've seen um lots of 
people in the industry, lots of younger people in the industry who are massively interested in what I'm doing. In They're interested in growing. They're interested in organic. Um, you know, we get a lot of people through our doors that talk about fermentation and that they've never done it and that they pickle things now. And I mean, you can see the boom in sourdough bread baking, yeah. um, which, you know, is a tough trade and people are still wanting to do it. And I think it's... You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to believe that that wasn't a bandwagon. I'd like to believe that it's not something that people go, oh, that's really cool, let's do it. It's actually a serious industry that needs to continue to grow because we're a very small percentage of, you know, the whole uh, kind of baking industry in the UK. Us sourdough bakers are, are a very small percentage of it, but it is growing. And there's definitely more interest partly because of COVID, partly because people having time. I mean, one of the things that I that people say to me is, oh, I haven't got time to do that. I haven't got time to, you know, ferment the batter. And I'm like, well, you don't have to do it every time, but at least experiment. I mean, you don't, it doesn't have to be sat somewhere for seven days. You can use it the next day or you can use it within a few hours, which, um, you know, I talk a lot about. It doesn't have to be days of your life that's consumed by something. But I think as well, it's like people just don't give themselves time to do things either you know it's like having a hobby we all used to have hobbies we have this time poor narrative don't we that that is part of capitalism isn't it ultimately it's it it makes us believe that we have to buy things rather than do things let's let's move on um to your food moment because the this kind of explains how you do what you do and why you do what you do we start with the barabrith with with uh, honey and cardamom what why did you choose this one particularly i chose it because it was one of the first um cakes that i experimented with at Bumblebee they made a version of it and then I thought well we could we can soak it in any kind of tea because that's the recipe um, and tea that we fermented tea that was left over tea, you know it was like um, my mother used to water the plants with the old tea because it's, it's very good for plants but we can soak fruit in it it doesn't you know we don't need to throw away everything you can you can if you make a pot of tea put some of it in a jar and just top it up for a week, and you then you soak your fruit in it. But the, one, the reason it was a, it was very, it was just a lovely cake to make, which I thought was my first foray really into doing something which was fermented in terms of fruit and a cake rather than bread or sourdough. And I made it for my grandfather actually, who was diabetic at the time and had it. An, an incredible sweet tooth and I remember making it for him and he absolutely loved it um, until honey was then banned and he couldn't have it um, but that was it's just stood out in my mind as a very young baker having the opportunity to experiment I think really um, and, and people appreciating the experiment and then of course Whole Foods came to town and that changed everything Whole Foods came into the UK and bought Fresh and Wild which was also another um, uh kind of whole food starting out whole food business which but the, the the partners in it were were very long time supporters of organic and biodynamic food that was the first department store of organic food and biodynamic food i mean you can wander down the aisles and and just browse in this whole world but you know fast forward it's now been bought up by amazon and i just wonder you know where what that means does it mean that we've kind of moved on to the next fad already no i think it's still there i mean i work uh, and will work again in the future with london farmers markets um and in 1998 
uh, I think I was doing about 11 farmers markets as part of my business. But as long as you have groups of people who are interested in buying wholesome food from farmers markets, from places like Planet Organic, Planet Organic are sort of a standalone brand for me. I work, I've worked with them really as well since about 1999 in terms of, you know, I, I was very core to their kitchen offer at the time. Um, and I still know them very well. And they they are really progressive and they see, you know, they, they do very well. I mean, the one thing that I can see through any of the whole food or organic brands is fads in diet, which is a big key to, you know, your keto, paleo, all of those diets that come in and then suddenly people are gluten-free and then they're suddenly vegan. And um, But within that, the whole, whole foods are still being sold. I think the fads in whole foods are the various diets that seem to happen. But it still means that people are, as long as they continue to buy organic and they understand why they would buy it or buy organic vegetables, buy seasonal vegetables, I mean... Whole Foods is very appealing to people. Now, when you go to Whole Foods, the original Whole Foods that I worked with was very different. It didn't have... Everything there was organic. Everything was... It was very, very different. Now you go there and you can get anything, really. It's become much more commercial. But there are still people out there who are doing really, really great things with um, providing that service. And I do think that it's continuing to grow. I mean, you can see that particular brands are continuing to grow. Um, so I'd like to think that it will. It's 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 been a very slow process. Yeah, yeah. And your second food moment tells that story pretty much as well, doesn't it? Your chocolate and blackberry loaf. Um, this is about patisserie organic. I decided to branch out on my own, and in, in about 1998, I decided to set up patisserie organic, and the chocolate cake was one of our best sellers. It sold everywhere. It was it was a vegan product. Um, and when we started Petistria Organic in 98, we started in a very tiny way and we and we sold to Fresh and Wild and we expl- it, the business exploded. So within five years, we were in Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, um, all the good restaurants. People were really interested in vegan food and they were really interested in gluten-free. So I had a specialist department and then I had a very fine artisan patisserie department as well. Um, and that's kind of why it, that, that particular cake will always stand out because it was such a, it's, it's such a beautiful cake to make and to eat. And it was a departure from the vegan and specialist dietary products that you could buy then which were not particularly nice to eat so i've always designed products that taste that are tasty and 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 important it is time that makes it tasty isn't it i mean everything from the steeping to the fermenting to the yes everything you know the leaving the sour milk or the milk to sour on the windowsill which is in your third food moment it is time isn't it can you do it it without time. time Well, you can. I think, uh, you know, when I was writing the book or when I, when I write any recipe, I look at it going, you can do it in two ways. So you can do it where you're, you, if you haven't got time. But for, I think anything good or anything that's a craft, it does take time. You know, that's, that's the key to all of it. It's like, 
you can, you know, there's lots of one bowl mixes that I do, but you have to leave them to ferment. So you're not spending hours putting stuff together. You just have to leave it for a while. And the longer you leave it, the better it is. The more intense the flavour, the more chocolatey it's going to be, uh, the more goodness that you're going to get out of what you're making. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is about time. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, there are there aren't enough specialist bakers out there as well, you know, to, to sort of be able to spread the word or for people to be able to access what we're doing. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I think that for me, Patisserie Organic was one of the, was a business that explored that craft and time and um, got people, a lot of people very interested in baking again. This was, you know, yeah. before any of any any explosion in baking but that particular business and i think because i was quite young people were interested in the fact that somebody as young as i was was so interested in the old-fashioned craft of baking yeah um you know which wasn't common at the time at all yeah it's it's interesting isn't it because uh, again it's the same argument as what happened to that gap um you know back in the old days my grandmother used to spend a lot of time uh doing exactly what your grandmother did um my grandmother was terribly poor um and she, but she didn't go to work uh she, her work was in in the home and so she had time to make these extraordinary wonderful foods that uh, she grew ev- absolutely everything there feels like a class divide it feels now that time is the preserve of the middle classes and of course this is where we deal with waste this is deal- where we deal with health this is where we deal with a healthy gut it feels like the have and have nots i mean it's it's obviously not a new argument to you how do you, how do you feel about that yes it it is more of a middle class situation that we're in but what i do doesn't doesn't come from remotely that place and you know my mother had eight children she did she was a crafter she used to knit she she made money through baking you know they they didn't they didn't have the luxury of time actually um what they did do was their life was it wasn't absorbed with anything electronic they didn't have phones they didn't spend their life in front of a screen you see it's it's about planning and my grandmother used to say this to me everything you do should be planned if you want to have a healthy diet it's a plan you don't need lots of money because they showed that we didn't have lots of money at all by any means um and it was just about planning the things that you need to do on a daily basis because people will find time now to do all the things that I would that I absolutely hate so it's like they'll sit in front of a computer for hours and that's cool if that's what you want to do but it's something that I can't do uh, because I'm just not built to do it but it's like having a walk well I haven't got time to have a walk I haven't got time to do stuff there is time it's just a different form of planning um And I and I do, but you know, there is an issue with people being fed correctly and properly, and understanding ingredients because there, you know, food poverty in the UK is huge. I mean, it's a huge issue, and we get asked about it all the time, and we get asked to give what we have to different food banks, and of course, we do as much as we can, and you know, if we have, you know, whatever we have, we will try and share. Um, but there is, you know, with the, it, 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 you know, you don't have to spend hours of your life fermenting things. It's literally mm. a process, but you have to have a plan 
that's the difference. Exactly. But it's also skills and confidence to have a go. And this is kind of, I was looking at your third food moment, and it is the sour milk soda bread. It's those kind of skills that you learn that might be really fun in school, because it's a bit of science as well. Tell us, tell us about this one. Well, my uh, grandmother made soda bread every day. That was just the norm for them. And it's a quick bread, soda bread, so it's kind of slightly different. It goes, the bread side goes, uh, on my bread side is completely different to the sourdough baking bread side. But we would, to, to give the, as she used to say, to give the bread power and softness, you had to use sour milk, so any, or a form of buttermilk. And she would, we would have to put the milk, that was maybe about to turn, in the, on the windowsill. Now, there was no refrigeration then. So there wasn't like you wouldn't buy or get... You, sometimes we had fresh cow's milk. It didn't go anywhere except in the cupboard in a bottle. So it wasn't like... Some, sometimes it was raw as well. I would just think it was completely normal, although the smell was very... was, was overwhelming. Um, to go out, get the bottle of milk, and she would just add that into her um, soda bread. And now that process gives the soda power. So it reacts like an explosion. And it makes the bread really, really soft. I mean, on a daily basis now, I make uh, soda bread, but I use, if I can get raw yogurt, I use it. But I use yogurt, very, very sour, natural yogurt. And it makes the bread really, really soft and really delicious. You can get a lovely crust with it. So the that for me was just, it was completely normal. That's just what you did. And you learned how to make it. And she would be doing something else and say, get your hands in there and just finish it off. You know, it's like, don't just, you know, it's, and not, you know, if you ever got a spoon, she'd say, why have you got a spoon? You can't make bread with a spoon or, you know, because as a kid you do, you think, well, I don't want to get my hands dirty or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Can you imagine that in a, in a cooking class in, in school, you know, 12, 13 years old? Oh, it's fantastic. That. Amazing. It's fantastic. It? You know, Getting your hands dirty, having a good old laugh and, and a bit of science in there yeah. as well. Fantastic. Your last food moment uh, takes us to your Moroccan uh, family. Uh, you're married to a Moroccan yeah. and your children are half Moroccan. Yeah. And tell us about the Bat Boots and Berber omelette. Um, the Bat Boot and Berber omelette actually was uh, inspired by, by my daughter, Sophia, who's now 23 and who works in the coffee industry. And she, when she, when she was four and my older daughter, Samea, who was eight at the time, um, they were four and eight. And I decided that after I, I, I actually went on to sell Patisserie Organic in 2004. And one of the things I'd always wanted to do, because I'd read um, Esther Freud's Hideous Kinky, this amazing book about uh, his true story. Um, but I, it, it didn't, you know, it was just a very inspiring story to say, well, actually, you can do this. If, if a woman did this in the 1970s, I could do it in the, you know, the 2000s. Um, it is. I should just say, just for anybody who doesn't know who it is, Kinky, it's a wonderful single woman taking her kids on a, a road trip a, a right up into the High Atlas Mountains and exploring the whole wonderful culture of Morocco. Yes, I went. my best friend and I decided we would uh, rent a Riyadh in the middle of Marrakesh in the Medina. And uh, we would live there and just hang out and get the girls to kind of get to know their Moroccan side and their family, their culture, I suppose, was, you know, it was was important for for everybody. Um, And one day we actually decided to drive. We had a very old Renault and decided to drive up into the Atlas Mountains. And sort of in the middle Atlas, we, we sort of stopped because Sophia had to be fed. 
it was just a thing. She would be unbearable unless she'd had something to eat. And I, we, so we got out of the car because she was having a hissy fit. Now, there's nowhere up there. We didn't plan on making that much of a journey, but we were quite far up to kind of decide to turn around and go to a restaurant in Marrakesh. And we sat, there's a beautiful valley um, in on the Tizian Test Pass, and she sat there on a rock looking out into this valley, and she was crying. And this man, in Morocco, this can happen anywhere. Somebody will turn up. You could be where you think you're completely alone, somebody will appear. And this man appeared and said, why is your child crying? And I said, because she's hungry. Um, and he said, I'm going to make her something. Now, we did a swap. He had a cut on his arm. And he said, if you can fix my cut, I will cook for your daughter. And he made this uh, Berber omelette, which we sell every day at, at Fortitude. And it was one of the most powerful moments of, for me, of that trip, because she remembers it to this day. It was she, I didn't think she would eat this particular omelette because it was onion and peppers and uh, egg. And it was, he put it in a piece of bread. I've since adapted it. And that's why it's one of my favorite food moments because she sat there eating it and we have some lovely pictures of her doing that. How magical. It was, ma yeah, magical. it was magical. It really was. Yeah, yeah. You famously uh, make cakes for some very famous people. Um, do share. Um, over the years, I've done a lot. I, I've done a uh, birthday cake for Madonna. For We did a cake for Blur. We did cakes for Prince Charles. Um, Fantastic. Tell us, what what kind of cake does Madonna eat? I mean, I can't imagine her eating cake. <laughs> At the time, it was a cake that had could have practically nothing in it. I remember fax machines were still working then. And we got faxed the list of products that she couldn't eat. And there was no gluten, there was no wheat. But we came up with this amazing almond sponge. We made a vegan cream. I think we used coconut milk. It was an amazing cake that she loved and sent us a card, actually, to say that she'd had a wonderful cake. But yeah, over the years, there's been many people. We, I think we did the first organic wedding cake, which was, had a, this massive feature in Elle magazine. And that kind of put us on the map for wedding cakes at the time. And what does Prince Charles like in his cake? Well, Prince Charles ha was obviously very interested in organic food. And they were doing actually doing something through the Prince's Trust. And he was involved in this. And he loved this um, organic maple sugar that had been gifted to him. And he asked us to make a cake for an event at the Princess Trust with this sugar. And I, I just remember him, you know, they, it was, they were very nice about it. And we did, uh, it was just very simple. It was like a Victoria sponge with cream and jam. It was a really, they wanted it really simple just to, to showcase organic products, I think, at the time. Yeah, good for them. Last question. Where are we going now? Fermenting, pickling, sourdough, soda bread, it's everywhere. We are absolutely at that peak of understanding the relationship between waste, gut health and something that's utterly, utterly delicious that takes time. What can stop this being a fad and, and something that absolutely becomes the heart, again, of British food culture? I do believe that it starts in school. I think it's a big thing and I've always been really passionate about it. And, you know, half my staff are under the age of 18 because they come to us for one or two days a week. We teach them. They have a completely different take 
on food and what they like by the time they leave us. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, and I do think that unless people are going into schools and that there is the money, you know, for, to educate children about food and craft, so much is going to be lost. I, you know, I, I do think educating, and you know, we do classes or we did do classes before COVID where people would come and I don't charge a huge amount of money. I don't sort of say everybody's a hundred pounds a head. That's not how you achieve anything. It's making the education cost effective um, and and people writing about it more. I think that's the other thing. It's just getting the message out there, getting the message out there, really, in as many ways as possible. I mean, you know, doing podcasts like this for me is really it's a huge opportunity to talk about um, food waste and craft because craft is another, you know, we, we talk a lot about mental health in our bakery and what we do and how it really there's so much to it and it's can, food's connected to so much because, you know, it sustains us. And I think it's people understanding, you know, what you put in your body sustaining you. I don't think everybody understands that message, really. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global podcast platform, which aims to change the world through food. Do get in touch with me on social media. I'm at Cooking Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for my newsletter at jillysmith.com to find out about the Cooking the Books Supper Club. I'll be back next week with the next on the Andre Simon Awards shortlist, Mark Diacono. <laughs>